I'm not gonna eat the dead guy's pizza. I feel better already. Really, I do. Hi there, Scream 101 listeners. Uh, This is Brennan Solo for just one sec. We're about to get into our discussion of the Slumber Party Massacre with super special guest BJ Colangelo. But I do have a couple bits of uh, housekeeping to discuss really, really quickly. I don't know why I can't talk right now. Um, Yeah, so we did promise like three weeks ago that this month was going to be our 90s teen horror month that's actually going to be next month that's going to be starting in june because i'm giving sergio more time to finish his finals because things got real crazy and busy like all of a sudden and i didn't want to press him too much so what we're doing this month is all of our fundraiser episodes for people who donated to every town um those are going to be our main episodes in the feed for this month so every friday um we're going to be doing one of those episodes thank you to everybody who donated um we're starting with tristan comer's pick and i i introduce it all in a second i already recorded that part so check that out also there is a new show on the Pod People Network. You should check that out. Um, Eerie Earfuls. It's uh, hosted by two brothers, Justin and Brandon. They do a double feature of two horror movies that are thematically linked in some way. There have already been two episodes. Um, you can find them via Eerie Earfuls on the podcast app, or you can find them on podpeople.me. It's a really great show. I've been listening through their content. And first of all, they have great podcast voices. Um, you learn a just shocking amount about film scores that I did not know before. It was really interesting, and I hope you check that one out. Um, their most recent episode, they did a double feature of Urban Legend and Vincent Price's Theater of Blood. So yeah, go give that a look, and without further ado, please enjoy the actual episode of Fundraising Scream 101. Thank you so much. All right, let's give a great big warm welcome to BJ Colangelo. That is how you pronounce your name, right? That is. Way to get it right on the first try. No one ever does. Thank you. Well, no one can ever pronounce my name, and I always think my name is pretty easy, so I try to make a point to know other people's names. Do you get, like, Brendan I've or Brennan? literally everything. Um, you know, Brendan, Brandon, the classics. Um, Brenna, Brina, Brianna. Um, mm. One time at Starbucks, Brando. <laughs> Um, I get a lot of people who refuse to accept that BJ it, are my initials. Um, I know they hear me, but they're like, oh, PJ, got it. I'm like, that's <laughs> not what I said, and you know that's not what I said. But well, whatever makes you happier. I only have to file this on my taxes. Oh, it's like your official like legal tax name? It's considered an alias because I do accept checks under that name. Oh, okay. So I have to. So, yeah, if anybody wants to write checks to BJ, you know how to do that. um no but okay so i'm i've been trying to wrangle your credits and i'm like you're you have such a vast body of work and let me see if i can do you justice who we're talking to today bj colangelo writer director all kinds of other awesome things um you're the co-director of powerbomb i am um musical theater actress extraordinaire i guess you could call me that (laughs) I, i will um, formerly writer for your awesome feminist horror blog, Day of the Woman, as well as Blumhouse.com before it exploded. Yes. Um, 
writer for Playboy, Birth Movies, Death, Cleveland Scene Magazine. Am I missing yes. anything? Um, formerly of Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, uh, a two-time stint at Fangoria, and uh, Icons of Fright. And a little bit of a bitch flicks as well. I think that's it. Okay. I, th- I think. Maybe. See, I don't know. There's a lot. Yeah. I, I knew some slash most of those, but my note card is not that big. <laughs> totally understandable. I, I was an overachiever that did not have a central home for a very long time, so I kind of wrote everywhere to make sure that I could keep food on my table. Yeah. Welcome to freelance writing online. Yes. I'm like right <laughs> at the beginning of that. <laughs> It's the dirt worst. Good luck. Strap in. Yeah, thank you. Um, But yeah, so you are here with us today to discuss the Slumber Party Massacre 1982. Um, Our listener Tristan Comer recommended this to us because he donated uh, $20 or more to the Everytown Campaign Against Gun Violence. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, And just really quick, um, this is something I had kind of texted you about earlier. I did want to talk about the fact that, you know, violence in movies and violence in real life are different things. Um, Mm -hmm. It just it was kind of an inescapable fact that this movie is plot wise about high schoolers being killed. And I was like, we got to talk about this. Right. Um, I think I think one of the important distinctions that is difficult for a lot of horror fans to recognize is that showcasing violence in cinema does not mean that it is encouraging or endorsing or advocating, advocating for violence. Um, And I think that Slumber Party Massacre is actually a really, really good example of this because it's, it was originally written as a parody and a lot of that still remains Um, on the screen. You can see that they were trying to make a criticism about the violence towards teenagers, in particularly teenage girls, uh, that were being shown in exploitation cinema and slasher films. Um, And I think that that's that's a very important distinction, is that, like, you should not feel bad if you enjoy seeing these sorts of films, but what you should do is ask yourself, why do you find this enjoyment? Are you finding it enjoy enjoyable because it's over the top it's allowing you that safe distance to deal with those emotions from real life violence and therefore this is now cathartic or are you enjoying it because you legitimately like watching other people experience pain and and death uh once you can ask yourself those questions and find the answers to that uh that's that's the important self-reflection that is needed um when watching films like this yeah, I mean, it is, like, horror films have always had to toe that line because, mo- like most things, it is what you get out of it. Right. Um, but for most people in the general audience, like, horror is just a safe way to exercise your demons. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, like, a way to, I mean, l- literally wrangle your own fears. Like, me personally, not to get, like, real deep but like i have a really startling magnificent fear of my own mortality mm-hmm. and horror films are a nice way to like get into that toolbox and be like well this is happening and i'm still safe and let's just like not think about it for a while <laughs> um and also that's, that's a great point to make i think so many people are 
terrified of their own mortality and horror is you know for a lot of people horror movies are sometimes their first exposure to the idea of death and you know it could even be a like a, a child's a children's movie um you know look at something like bambi you know yeah <laughs> if that's your first encounter of death like it's a very harsh truth and that's i think if anything that's more traumatic than horror films which are presented in somewhat of an exaggerated way and it allows that safe distance whereas you know every disney movie where someone's parent is dead is way more real life and terrible than a horror movie uh i mean the likelihood that someone's going to take a giant phallic drill and mow down all your friends is you know not not really within the realm of possibility a gun that's a different situation but yes absolutely but the the power drill of <laughs> of uh, a slumber party massacre um, allows you to deal with those demons in a safe distance. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, there is the fact that like human beings do have an inherent interest in the macabre, um, mm-hmm. and in like scenes of death. That's why people slow down to look at an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is like a kind of weird lizard brain interest in that sort of thing, not in perpetrating or inflicting that sort of damage but in like seeing it and understanding it well that's why things like rotten.com or the pain olympics Uh, or any of those sorts of videos like faces of death faces of death yeah they became so popular because there is this weird inherent fascination like there's a subreddit that is just videos of car accidents caught on security cameras or ISIS decapitation videos. And it's just, it's literally just a subreddit of watching people die. And it's one of the most popular subreddits because people are fascinated. That doesn't mean that they necessarily want to inflict violence or that they want to harm other people. It's just this innate fear because we're all going to die someday and that's a terrifying realization, and people have different ways of dealing with that. For some of us, it's watching real-life terrible things, and for others, it's watching horror films. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I just wanted to make it clear that we're not in any way advocating for the death of high schoolers. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the reason we are doing this fundraising drive. Um, and one last point about like horror movie deaths is, like, Special effects are real fun, you guys. Like, it can be awesome sometimes. Especially practical effects, which this film is chock full of. It sure is. Okay, so let's get on to the more fun part of things, I suppose. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Real quick, I'm going to read the plot synopsis off the back of my Slumber Party Massacre DVD. It's part of the uh, Roger Corman's cult classics triple collection. That's the same one that I have. Yes, it's so good. It really is. Um, But yeah, here we go. When Trish decides to invite her high school girls basketball teammates over for a slumber party, she has no idea the night will be ruined by an escaped mental patient with a portable drill in the cult classic The Slumber Party Massacre. Um, That's a real short, but that's really all there is. Yeah, there's not a lot of twists. There's no red herring. There's no mask. And I think that's what makes Slumber Party Massacre so interesting and to me so obviously written and directed by women is because there's no mystery as to who the killer is. You know who it is immediately and you follow him immediately. And I think that's very reflective of how women deal with 
violence that's geared towards them. Like everyone likes to push this narrative of, you know, with, with rape culture and violence against women, that it's like this masked man in the alley. It's not, it's someone that, you know, and you recognize their face and you can follow them the whole time. So I always found that to be so interesting about this film is there's, there's no secret. It's like, here's this dude, here's his face. Uh, here's his stupid blue jumper and here's his <laughs> giant drill. There you go. Like, you know who he is. There's no, maybe it was the boyfriend. Like, nope, it's this guy. Like, j- watch out. <laughs> no, that makes sense. I actually never thought of it in that, uh, like, eloquent and laid out of terms before. But <laughs> you are right. Because, like, a lot of uh, slasher films have that whodunit element, which mm-hmm. is very fun. But in this one, it's like, he done it, And... You just kind of yeah. have to flatly stare him in the face the whole time as he tells you you're pretty and you deserve this. Yeah. it's What's also really interesting to me, too, that a lot of people, I don't know if they pick up on it, is that a lot of the, one, this is a very, very heavily female cast, which granted, yes, it's a slumber party. That makes a lot of sense. But even the secondary characters, yes. there's a lot of women. Like, the first kill of... The film is a telephone pole worker, which that is a very masculine job. That's not something that you assume is going to be a female. So it's weird because it's crazy progressive because you're like, wow, this woman is working in, you know, this dangerous profession, fixing the telephones. That's like, you know, that's unheard of. But then she's the first one to die and it's like, oh, well, of course they're going to kill women. But, you know, that that's kind of how you are able to have a... A, not satirical, but that's that's a way to make a commentary on the world at large. Yeah, it, and I it's, think they do a great job at it. It's gently subversive, very much so. Yeah, and I mean, there's also the female handyman who provides one of the fake scares with um, drilling a peephole into the coach's door. I I love that scene too because it's like I'm just installing your peephole, and it's like. What what a coincidence. How convenient for this horror movie that you now have a peephole. Yeah, and also uh, peepholes aren't literally just holes in your door. There's usually glass involved. Yeah. She just drilled a big hole right through the front door. <laughs> I mean, maybe some people aren't into the fisheye lens effect that you get with the peephole glass. Who's to say? Good point. This could be what she asked for. <laughs> We, we'll never know. We'll we never won't know. because R.I.P. Coach, whatever your name is. Yeah, you gone. I did not keep track of these names. Um, the only name that I ever remember is Trish. And I've seen Slumber Party Massacre probably three times. Um, I've seen the sequels, I think, twice each. Great. But I, I re- always remember Trish. And then, like, Brink Stevens, I don't know her actual character name. I just know it's Brink Stevens. Wait, which one is Brink Stevens because I'm aware of her but I had so much trouble telling the bulk of this cast apart so here, <laughs> you're not wrong um, it's very difficult because the other big problem is that this movie is from 1982 and in 1982 there was a very distinct style Yeah, um, there was a shortage of hair that wasn't 8 feet tall yes um, so that's <sighs> That's why I never know what her character's name is. Like, oh, that's Brink Stevens. I just, I just know her. Um, I think her character's name is Linda. Or like, I want to say, what, what is her role in the plot? Like, which one? Do, what she's do... like, she's kind of like the book nerd. Um, 
She wears the pink, uh, the pink button up with the collar. Okay. She gets killed. Um, like in the locker room. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, that by that point, I had retained absolutely zero names, and she was already gone from the movie. Yeah, she she dies pretty early, but Brink Stevens is one of the actresses that actually went on to have a very substantial horror career. Yes. So that's why I, I guess I gravitate towards her, because I love her in Nightmare Sisters and pretty much everything else she's ever done. I think she's great. Yeah, no, um, she's definitely one of the Scream Queens that I've read about but haven't personally experienced quite enough to be like, oh yes, that's her, I know her. Absolutely check out Nightmare Sisters, you'll thank me later. I... 100% trust your judgment because we've had plenty of Twitter conversations about awesome movies. Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, as always, uh, we rate every movie out of five on scariness, campiness, FX, and quality. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to start with scariness? Are you scared of this movie at all? Um, I'm not scared of this movie. Um, Yay! I had I had to think about the first time that I saw this, which I I probably would have been about twelve thirteen because my parents let me do whatever I wanted. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so I saw this very young, and I don't recall it ever scaring me. If anything, I had more fun with it, and I think that does go back to its like the script's roots being a parody, and because of that, there are moments in the film that tend to come off a little bit more humorous than I think probably the producers wanted it to. Um, like there's that, uh, fake scare where the girls, uh, outside the window and she's waving at them to like, let her in and they hang on her face for like two seconds too long. And it stops being scary and immediately turns funny. Um, so I think because of those kind of breathers, it never really scared me. Um, I think the gore was always a little like, oh shit. Um, but as far as actual building suspense, um, I don't know if it's the best example of it. I would say maybe like a, maybe like a two and a half, three. Okay. Um, but three is being very generous in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, for me, I've definitely landed like pretty squarely at a two. Mm -hmm. Um, because it is kind of in my mantra that slasher films aren't scary most of the time. Right. Um, at least these kind of cheesy 80s entries. There are ones that do stand out. Um, the actual good ones, like, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But you're if you if you just pick a random slasher out of the barrel, it, it, it could be fun, but usually not scary. Right. Um, although... Like you said, there there were certain moments of ineptitude, especially in the fake scares, where you're like, it's just kind oh, of like yeah. an endless parade of ridiculous <laughs> false scares. Um, but there there were two moments that stood out to me where I was like, oh, this is kind of affecting me. And I don't know if this is on purpose, but it's a little uncanny. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of the dudes whose names I know even less than the girls. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his name, actually both of the dudes have had pretty good deaths um one of them like there's actually a funny moment where um the killer has all the bodies in this trunk and he's counting them all and he's missing one and he's like oh shit yeah Um, (laughs) so but then this this teen boy is like bloody and like uh, struggling for breath and like kind of scratching against the door and they think it might be the killer and that scene really freaked me out it is pretty intense that that i will I will give you, especially because I think that's such a, 
common experience where you're hearing like a branch on a window or, you know, a cat at the bedroom door or what have you. And your immediate thought is like, it's a serial killer. I'm going to die. So I think that that's, that's a, that's a very universal fear that they kind of tapped into. Yeah. And and that scene is scary from both ends because it's scary for the girls inside the door, but it's also really scary for him. Like he's having the, uh, like the Drew Barrymore opening scene of scream moment where she can see her parents, but she can't quite call out to them. Everyone forgets how mean the opening scene of Scream is because of that, because she can see her parents and can't call out to them, and then that they can hear her on the phone and they can't find her. It is so brutal, and because Scary Movie ruined it with parody, everyone forgets how awful it is. Yeah, That's a total tangent, but (laughs) anytime someone brings up that scene, I'm like, do you remember how brutal that actually was? No, I I do. It sticks with me. (laughs) It's so bad. It's so mean. Um and I think, I think actually, you you make an interesting point because you do look at a film like Scream, which is essentially, uh, you know, a commentary on the slasher films, which this is originally what Slumber Party Massacre was supposed to be, and it's very interesting to see the two like very different routes that you can take. Like Scream, I think, is very mean spirited at times while still being fun, whereas I don't think. Slumber Party Massacre ever fully gets mean-spirited. I think it always has, like, a nice layer of uh, camp on top of all of it, which prevents it from ever feeling cruel, because this this very well could have been a very cruel movie. I mean, the, the, the driller killer, as whatever you want to call him, you know, the the i love you you're you're gonna want you're gonna want this or you'll love it i know you want it like that's so Robin creepy Thicke. and he, yeah god it's terrible it's so rapey and awful like that could have been mean and terrible and instead it it feels more pathetic than anything and i think that that's also an important distinction to make with this film yeah absolutely i i do agree with that with the exception of one scene which kind of hit me this time um, the very closing scene, it just cuts to different close-ups of all three of our main characters kind of like, they're victorious, but they're just weeping and totally wrecked by this experience. And then it just cuts to the credits. And I was like, oh, that was kind of brutal. It's very much like the ending of Texas Chainsaw. Oh, yeah. Where like Sally gets away and you're like, oh, yeah, she did it. Oh, God, she's ruined. <laughs> um, I just, I th- think it, I, this movie didn't feel like it earned such a downbeat ending because it's such a fun movie. Right. And there, what's crazy too, is that there are so many moments in this movie that could have easily been turned into like traumatic and horrifying with something as simple as like a sound change. Um, like one of my favorite scenes is when <laughs> the, the, when the girl's opening the refrigerator to get a beer and she opens the door like four times and her friend's dead body just keeps progressively sliding further and further out of it. But she never actually looks in the fridge and the sound effect they use is like a squeak sound, like her dead (laughs) body squeaking against the door of the fridge, which makes it really funny. But had it been like, a Joseph Bashara like insidious style like insane violin trill like that would have been horrifying well i mean that that's the difference between like a horror comedy and a horror movie like there's such yes. subtle distinctions and this is definitely more on the comedy angle even though most of the parody has been left on the cutting room floor right which is such a bummer to me like i would love to see like a legitimate 
female parody of the oh, slasher yes. genre, which this is the closest I think we're ever going to get to it. Um, I mean, yeah, and yeah. It, it is worth, <laughs> we've been kind of tiptoeing or not tip, not like avoiding it, but, um, this, we have not mentioned that the script was originally written by Rita Mae Brown, who's like a very noted feminist activist yes. and author. Very much so. Uh, the author of Ruby Fruit Jungle and now a bunch of mystery novels about cats. Um, yep. <laughs> so she's hey, re- follow those dreams. Follow those dreams. I know. They're so cute, though. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, during this time in her life, she was like borderline militant feminist. So yeah, she publicly sparred with Betty for Dan. <laughs> yeah, that's you've I don't know what the expression is for women. Like normally it's like you, you could take some. Take some balls for that, but uh, I don't know what to call that. Ovaries? Ovaries. I don't know. Take take some fallopes to do that. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yes, it does. There's no fun badass expressions for for women, but Rita Mae Brown, she's a badass. Oh, yeah. She's she's incredible. She's terrifying, but a badass. (laughs) And and this movie is exactly what happens when that person writes a script and then Roger Corman gets his hands on it. Yeah. I mean, this is what happens when you have a very, very brazenly feminist writer and then you get somebody who makes women in cage movies to take your script and make it palatable for mass audiences. Yeah. I mean, he's ruthlessly exploitative, but the fact that, like, he he is, he's got... He's got his things, um, but he has given a lot of filmmakers a chance, including the fact that all three of the Slumber Party Massacres were directed and produced by women, which is awesome. Right. Right. Which I think that's something that a lot of people don't ever notice. What's always so frustrating to me, and I guess this is probably because I notice it more as, as a female, is that whenever we look at slashers or classics or what have you, the director and the writer are almost immediately the first thing that comes to mind. Like you talk about Halloween, it's immediately John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about Nightmare, it's immediately Russ Craven. You talk about Summer Party Massacre, and everyone talks about Roger Corman, and no one talks about Amy Holden Jones or Rita Mae Brown. And that's always bothered me because I think that while yes, you can definitely see the elements of a Corman esque film in this, this to me speaks more of a female created film than anything else yeah absolutely like it it is still it does still fit pretty squarely in the slasher milieu but there's enough that's different where you're like this is a unique perspective that we weren't getting at the time absolutely i mean there's it's just even in the gaze of this film that changes it's very much from the female gaze and any of the aspects of it that are presented under the male gaze like there is some you know gratuitous nudity in it but it's all it's all realist like real nudity it's not um like it's nudity functional for the sake not... of it. yeah it's functional like this is they're in a locker room she's changing for for school like those are instances where yeah you would be nude and all of it is shot in a way that you're seeing it as if you're a voyeur and you're not supposed to feel good about it like all of the men are perceived as like peeping toms and like you're meant to think that they're kind of awful for spying in on these women so you by proxy are also awful for spying on these women 
Yeah, like like in in that shower sequence, which is a very long take that just panning past you know women taking a shower. Mm-hmm. There there's a shot that completely unmotivated just slides all the way down so you can get a look at um i believe trish's butt yeah and that's not a gratifying sequence not i'm i personally am not interested in the female body sexually Mm -hmm. um but even if i was that shot's not a treat necessarily it's like oh this is weird this is like a violation Oh, absolutely. And I'm somebody who does find the female body, like, sexually enjoyable. And I'm like, I don't feel good about any of this. This is not titillating to me. This makes me feel kind of gross. And I feel like I'm invading the privacy of these women. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, that's the Roger Corman element mixed with the Amy Jones element. They're kind of warring, like, within the same exploitation scene. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can, you can, that's a really, really good way to put it. I mean, you're getting the, uh, to, to an uninformed lover of film, that's just a gratuitous nude shot. But if you look at the way that it's, the way that it's shot, the way that it's presented and the way that the actors are holding themselves, like they're never presenting. Uh, I think a lot of slasher nude scenes, they tend to be very presentational. It's not presentational in this film. And that's what makes it so uncomfortable to watch yeah it's almost Um, clinical yeah that's a really good way to put it um yeah clinical that's that's a great word for it thank you (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) okay i think we should i mean i think this is a good jumping off point into our campiness score because for me gratuitous nudity always slots pretty firmly into campiness yes Um, (laughs) do you have a rating out of five for that I would give it a solid four. Um, I think that this could very much, it has the potential to skyrocket over the top into like full camp. I give it a four only because of the weaponry. Um, I think, I think that because the weaponry is so phallic and it's not even like, obviously a knife is phallic, a machete is phallic, but a circular drill is like ribbed for her pleasure phallic and it makes every scene that it's in so much more hilarious to me. Um, and it, I mean, yes, it has the commentary on like, this is clearly a reflection of rape culture because it's penetration with this phallic object. But because of that, it does make it like inherently psychosexual in your brain. And I think psychosexual is funny to me. I think it's funny to have a killer who's clearly so, so, so sexually inept that he has to use a phallic object to compensate for whatever issues he's got going on with. To me, that's funny. It's just like how I think it's funny when I see people with gigantic trucks with truck nuts. You're compensating (laughs) for something and that's funny to me. Um, that's a good point. And then again, and then again, going back to like that sound design, like that, that refrigerator scene alone is, it's perfect. It's so well made and it's all in a one That's the other thing. It's just one shot and she's just going back to that refrigerator. So they're not readjusting. They're not cutting around it. It's just this poor girl is sitting in this refrigerator and falling out every so often. Um, that's funny to me. Um, and then of course, like the fake, the fake scares, um, all of those mis- misdirected scares, uh, they all hang a little bit too long and it crosses over from being effective jump scares to just campy nonsense. Yeah, absolutely. There, there, there's a weird blend in this movie of 
I mean, it's so micro budget cheap that there's a lot that on the filmmaking technical level that just isn't working. Right. Like, <laughs> especially in the sound design and mixing, um, especially in some of the cinematography. But there are those really ambitious one shots. Like um, the one with the fridge. They're the one that is exploitative in the shower. But, like, that is a really well choreographed shot that has, like, a bunch of different conversations overlapping all within one take. And there's a lot of really ambitious stuff going on in here. It's really interesting. I also I also think that any film that features a Playgirl magazine, not just a Playboy, a Playgirl magazine, immediately gets camp points. Hell yeah. Because it's so ridiculous to me. <laughs> Who actually bought Playgirl if you were not a gay man? I would not know. But do you happen to know who was on the cover? I couldn't quite tell. It was too fast. I couldn't tell either, but it like they sort of have like a Sylvester Stallone face. Maybe it is Stallone and I'm I don't know, was he ever on the cover of Playgirl? I but... wouldn't know. Magazines. Let's see. Print is dead, BJ. I know. It kills me. No, I know. It it kills me too, but... um... Oh my god, it really was Sylvester Stallone. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my god. I just just had to look it up because it was going to bother me. And yeah, she's definitely reading a Sylvester the Stallone Playgirl. uh, Hell yeah. That's a collector's item. There's an interview with baseball superstar Dan Ford who takes it all off. (gasps) Oh... Yeah. Okay, bring back a, magazines. Magazines yeah, uncanceled. Bring it back. There's all <laughs> There's also an uh an interview that's what he feels when she's pregnant. So, who all right, cares? Playgirl, go on with your bad self. <laughs> that's pretty awesome. On but honestly in that quick glimpse, Stallone did not even cross my mind. Like for some reason my my brain was giving me David Naughton from American Werewolf in London. Oh my god, could you imagine if he posed for Playgirl? That would have been so cool. I mean, he practically did in American Werewolf. You get to see his butt That's so true. much in that movie. There's a lot of naked American man yeah. balloons in that movie. And and you do see his 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 uh his penis for a minute. Mm-hmm. From far away, but it's there. Yeah. Um and my other option was a real deep cut. I was like, this there's no way this person was posing for a Playgirl, but it looked like Martin Hewitt from Killer Party. Um, so that's something that's in my brain. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm all, I was going to give this movie a three out of five on campiness, but I realize now that I was tragically incredibly wrong. So I'm bumping it up to a four. Yes. <laughs> like just really digging in on these. It's like, yeah, I mean, cause, um, there are, there are a lot of straightforward slasher elements with that little bit of comedy kind of peeking in around the edges pretty much all the time. But um, the comedy in this movie I find so, like, consistent and actually funny most of the time. It is. It's very genuine. And I think that's also why I give it, like, a higher camp rating because I treat it similarly to the way that I do most cult movies. Like, the reason The Room is such a good cult movie is because they weren't trying to be a cult movie. A movie like Birdemic is trying to be a cult movie. I don't think Slumber Party Massacre was trying to be campy. I mean, at least the producers weren't trying to make it campy. The script may have been. Producers sure as shit were not. They wanted to make a straight horror film. Um, So because of that, it has all of these moments that are subconsciously and unintentionally hilarious. And that makes it even funnier. It's like people who are 
super punk rock and they're more punk rock because they don't know they're punk rock and that's what makes them punk rock. Um, I think that's how the camp is in this movie is they're not, they're not winking at the camera. This isn't meant to be, you know, this isn't student bodies. This is, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like this is a movie where the, the comedy exists because that's how it would exist in nature. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, most slasher movies do have an element of comedy in the first act, in the character parts where all the characters are interacting before they get murdered. Um, like, in a in a college campus slasher, it's like, oh, we're going to goof off with the frat boys and piss off the dean, and there's going to be, like, a joke, and that's kind of just naturally right. arises from the situations. Um, Slumber Party Massacre has a lot of that, as well as the, like, major camp factor in the the deaths and destruction that happen <laughs> like i mean there's the the scene where um the there's a, a pizza boy who gets his eyes drilled out and... oh it's so great the <sighs> scream it like the sound is clearly peaking and it oh, makes yeah. it so much better <laughs> see so that's a combination of unintentional because of that kind of inferior quality but also that seems pretty great because um, the boys are going to pay for the pizza and they're like, what's the damage? And you just hear six so far. <laughs> and they're like, oh, it's six bucks. And it's like, no, that's the body count, boys. Get ready. <laughs> um, and then one of the girls at the slumber party gets hungry. So she pulls the pizza out from under this corpse that has fallen into their living room and sets the box on top of his body and starts chowing down. That's funny. To be real, that would be me. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be like, I'm real sorry about your eyes, but like, this is going to get cold, and that's a waste. There are starving people in Africa. I agree, except for the fact that he clearly got some of his, uh, to, to steal a term from the Kill by Kill podcast, some of his corpse juice kind of leaked out onto the <laughs> box. Well, that's like, that's like when people have. A loaf of bread and one piece of the bread may have mold on it. The rest of it's fine. Just toast it. See, I'm, I'm... I'm a disgusting human being. I don't know if you've captured that yet. No, but I, I'm... I would eat like, corpse juice pizza. I'm so careful about food. And not even for any particular reason. I don't have, like, a weak stomach or anything. But if there's, like, one speck of mold, it's like, I'll let someone else eat this if they want. But I'm going to move on. <laughs> But yeah, no, like if that pizza was more pristine, I would totally be eating it. Yeah, I would, I would just eat the pieces that were unaffected by corpse juice. That's just me. Yeah, except I believe she ate from exactly under where his hand had been resting, which is a mistake. I think you're right, which is gross. <laughs> she's going to regret that. Her stomach's not going to feel good. Well, I mean, she's dead, so I guess it's fine. Yeah, that's true. R.I.P. Yeah, R.I.P. whatever your name is. <laughs> throwaway female names i don't know any of you i know you play basketball okay. i know you have tryouts for baseball that's all i know about any of you yeah oh speaking of um women doing things that are typically male roles this is a sports team having a slumber party which is rad as hell yeah they're not a spirit squad they're not cheerleaders they're not dancers they're a basketball team these are athletes yeah and um the one girl whose name I do remember, her name is Kim. She is oh, wearing right. a sports jersey throughout the whole thing. And she's, for a major scene, is discussing baseball scores. And they actually, like, call the coach to figure out, like, what score... I don't know, who made which runs during the game because Google didn't exist yet. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Oh, and there's Val. Val's the other one I remember because Val is the one who... 
basically castrates the killer by fucking up his drill. Hell yeah. She's the neighbor Bad. girl who was kind of sort of not invited to the party. Yeah. Um, another great line, because Trish is telling her friend, what's her name? Um, she's like, oh, you're such a snob for not wanting to invite Valerie. And she's like, only the best people are. <laughs> that is a great line. What? That's a good life motto. Yeah, it sure is. And that then, should be somebody's like Instagram bio. <laughs> it should be. Oh, I love that. And one more one more genuine joke that I liked. Um, there's, like, you know, to get you in the mood for a horror film, the movie starts with Trish waking up and you hear a scream, and then it turns out it's someone on the radio winning a prize. And Which is so good. And there, there's so many layers to this joke. Um, because the radio station is KDED, which is K-Dead. It's like, okay. But, um, so she's like, oh my god, what did I win? And they're like, you win a KDED t-shirt. And then you just hear her go, oh. Mm-hmm. Which is just, like, such a fun background joke that's not really called attention to at all, but I was very amused by it. Her disappointment. <laughs> yeah. I have a question before we move on. Sure. Um, During the aforementioned playgirl reading sequence, mm-hmm. um, we see Valerie walk in on her sister, Courtney, reading this magazine, and she picks up a banana peel. Mm-hmm. Was Courtney... I think that's the implication. Yeah. <laughs> Which, in my brain, all I can think about is like, oh, God, you'd have such a yeast infection. Yeah, um, but but the implication <laughs> to me also seems to be that she, like, I could understand, I would not support or condone this, but I would understand using, like, you know, people practice putting a condom on a banana, and it's like, I get that. But, like, she opened it, so she must have used the soft banana, which, no. Yeah, that's... You would just crush it. (laughs) It would get destroyed, and you would get a yeast infection, and no one would have fun. (laughs) I'm going to choose to believe she was practicing blowjobs on the banana and then ate it. I'm going to choose to believe that she practiced with the peel on and then didn't want to waste it, so then she unpeeled it because the banana would still be intact. Okay, good point. Um, And the banana is still safe, although it is another corpse juice pizza box situation. I probably wouldn't (laughs) eat it. Um, but it's fine. People make choices. Let them live their life. Who am I to kink shame what people want to do with bananas? Yeah, exactly. That's totally fine. I'm just saying the soft <laughs> banana, not the way to go. No. It's... No, free. You, like, maybe if you froze it, but then even then, now it's cold, and, like, that's also... Uh, ugh, no. You're going to have, like, a, a Christmas story tongue on the flagpole situation. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Could you imagine the fire department showing up oh to this? Oh, my God. It's bad enough they have this, like, drill killer coming after them. This one's got a banana stuck in her. Oh this is God. terrible. It's a massacre. <laughs> it's the worst slipper part. I, like, if I was the driller killer, I wouldn't even kill her. Like, that's embarrassing enough on, on your own. I'm just going to let you you live this way now. This is you now. Uh, okay, we gotta move on now. Um, yeah. <laughs> what is your effects score out of five? Like, how's the gore treating you on this one? I give this one also a four because there are a lot of practical effects and they are really ridiculous. Um, the only reason that I don't give it a higher score is because some of the close-up ones, uh, in particular, like the eyes of the pizza guy, <laughs> um, 
not great. <laughs> Definitely some, like, anything that has to do with, like, blood exploding or a lot of blood, uh, they do very, very well. But that's also because you can hide a lot of seams with blood. Um, anything that does not have the luxury of blood uh, doesn't look very well, but it's still fun and silly. Um, and there's, there's lots of drilling. And drilling, inherently, I think, is... Like, that's a difficult effect to do, because it's not just a stab. It's not a one and done. Like, it's a slower process. Yeah, so it's, it makes it's, it's impalement, it's spinning. Yeah. To make that look effective is way harder than, like, slashing somebody. Yeah, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Um, but, yeah, there, there, there's especially, there's some good, like, alien-esque scenes of drills protruding through people's yes. chests and stuff. Um, and just blood spurting everywhere. Really, with, like, the blood, yeah, it is used to cover stuff up, but the more the merrier, you know? Like, let's get all of it in there. I'm into it. I mean, the film has all of its kind of slapsticky comedic moments, so having there be a, an, an excess of blood helps keep the gore within that world. Like, if it was hyper-realistic, it would not fit in the world of Slumber Party Massacre. No, absolutely not. And um, I'm, I'm giving this one a 3 out of 5, because I do have a hard time looking past some of the shoddier effects like um the coach gets like slashed across the gut and there's nothing there's nothing in that scene yeah no (laughs) um it's like her shirt gets torn open and then like it looks like she spilled red paint on her shirt but not on her body um yeah and there, there are certain moments like that where i'm like well you tried um but i wish everything was like the height of it because there's a lot of really great stuff in here um especially the killer's death yeah they really pull out all the stops (laughs) yeah like they chop off his hand and there's like multiple steps involved in that and there's blood gushing everywhere and then you see his hand fall to the pavement it's so good it's pretty wonderful and then of course there's um the i mean the castration scene of his penis drill being like chopped in half with a machete you know as you have Mm -hmm. in your basement in hollywood um And it's already been sharpened enough to cut through drill that has been piercing through bone all evening. Yeah. You know. I You know. Logic. I've, I've never used a machete, so, like, that seems fair. Um, but, yeah, so there's such a loving close-up of the tip of that drill just going plunk into the pool. Mm-hmm. It, it, it feels visceral. I mean, may- it feels, it's very reminiscent of <laughs> the scene in Teeth when the actual penis just falls Uh. and it's just like oh god and that because that's basically the symbolism of the drill just plop yeah and it's just it's such a it turns into such a quiet moment it's just like bloop and you're like oh it's gone forever and i think that like and that's honestly like that's very much i think the the female handling of that situation i think that had this been from male directors it would have probably been like this horrifically like tragic and over the top like this is the worst thing like everyone's screaming no and yeah like like furiosa like, in the desert screaming into the sky yes yes exactly whereas like a female director was like yeah your dick fell off sorry about it bye <laughs> <laughs> well your drill dick whatever you want to it's it is what it is like we know it, it's a symbol for a dick it's a penis there's that shot of him attacking the girl in the garage, and it's literally, like, dangling between his legs. Yes! 
Well, even the cover of it is him standing spread-legged with the drill between his legs. Yep. Which I always, which I always love because that's such a female cover of VHS tapes. It's usually like some, some woman in high heels and a short skirt and fishnet with like a knife or a gun or whatever. And they flipped it. And I think that that's like, even that imagery alone is super powerful and shows like the progressive inverted nature of the whole piece. Yeah, it it really is like tremendously subversive in these ways that are both quiet and extremely loud. Yes. <laughs> Very much so. They're playing with a lot of juxtaposition of of typical slasher convention and I think they do it really well. I wish more people would talk about it. I think everyone focuses so heavily on Oh, Slumber Party Massacre. It's like House and Sorority Row. And it's like, no, it's not, actually. It's very different. It is. I I do want to say I love House and Sorority Row. I awesome do too, movie, but for but very, different. very different reasons. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, oh, man. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole of that movie. I'm going to move on real quick. Um, what's your quality score for the Slumber Party Massacre overall? Um, I'd say probably like a three and a half on it. There's... Uh, you know, like I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of peaking of screams in this movie. Uh, whoever was holding that boom mic did not pull away. <laughs> um, some of the shots are a little dark at times and difficult to see. Uh, for the most part, I think that it's really, really well crafted. There are a lot of really interesting shots. Um, you know, I know we talked about the the shower is very interesting. And I honestly, I even really like the opening shot of, you know hanging on that radio uh next to the bed and then yeah. her feet coming down. I really like I really like those. They don't really fit in what I would expect from a typical slasher film. Um I think the death scenes are shot really, really well. Um it's I think a lot of it is just the the elements they really couldn't control probably due to budget because if it's a Roger Corbin movie, like there's money, but there's not a lot of money. Um so and I not think a lot that, of time. Oh God no. Absolutely not. Uh, so I think that that pushed it to like a three and a half for me. Okay. I, I'm totally feeling that too. Um, 3.5 is like exactly where I'm at, but I do like to commit to a whole number. So <laughs> I'm going to land on three for today. Although like last year when I watched it last, I would have given it a four. I think it's maybe a little too familiar to me at this point for me to like mm-hmm. get as much pure joy from it. Cause like, yeah, I know what's happening. Um, right. what's great about it is that it's, mega short it's such a brief movie. so quick yeah so it it really slams by which is great um yeah there there is that certain lack of quality that you know no one could help it is what it is um but there's parts where you're like i just wish this was a little bit better or like better looking or easier to see what's actually happening or hear what's happening Um, right I will say there, um, Amy Holden Jones, um, in order to prove that she like could direct this movie or produce this movie, she first, um, produced an eight minute short that was like a segment of this movie to show to Roger Corman. And she said that that short was shot better than any of the movie. First of all, because they had more time. And second of all, because it was shot by her husband, who was a cinematographer who did a raging bull. Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. So... Wish he had time to do this movie, huh? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, so, I don't know. Interesting little fun fact there. <laughs> Is that short available anywhere? I don't think so. 
because I knew there was like a essentially like a proof of concept that was made, um, but I did not know that about her husband being the cinematographer for Raging Bull. Holy crap! Yeah, exactly. I I mean, if it exists, it might be on the Screen Factory Blu-ray. I don't know what the uh, like bonus features are on that. Mm, that um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, because I have a very small Blu-ray collection because I don't have a lot of money. <laughs> I know that feel. Yeah. Um, let's see what else is there. Um, I really like the sister relationship in this movie between Val and Courtney. I do too. I don't think that there are a lot of good sister relationships in horror. I think that they tend to try to pit sisters against each other more than anything. Like a whatever um, happened to baby Jane situation. Yeah. I think, I think that's a pretty common one or I mean, even even one of the main focuses of Ginger Snaps is, you know, the separation of their sisterhood is what is driving a lot of problems between them. Um, I like that they, you know, they clearly have their differences, but they still kind of have each other's back. I, I don't think they, I don't think that's done as often as I would like, um, because I also think that there's, there's something very interesting in analyzing sister relationships within group settings. Um, I mean, I grew up with a sister who's three years younger than me and sleepovers and any sort of communal event with a lot of girls in one sitting was, is always really weird to have like your kid sister around. Yeah. And um, that's very much an element of this movie too. Very much like so. that friction. Um, yeah. So that was really cool. Um, and also one of the, like the, the, what I think is probably the best kill in the movie on a filmmaking level um, is one of the boys has decided to run over to Valerie's house and she's watching a horror movie on TV. Um, I'm not sure what movie it was. I should have looked that up. Um, but his death and stabbing is um, like intercut with the, a death scene in the movie. And it's actually a really cool scene. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm choking on my own saliva uh, uh that's not no, good. i think i think that that's that's something that i think became kind of bigger later in later in life like i think in like the late 90s early 2000s when horror movies started looking like music videos i think that that became a more popular thing but because i'm trying to think i don't think i can recall a moment that is like this in an earlier horror film yeah. This might be one of, like, the earliest examples of that. I mean, it was pretty big at, like, around, like, the Y2K, but I can't think of anything else that's, like, that predates any of that, or predates this, I should say. Yeah, exactly. And, and um, like, it's a, that's a long-standing filmic tradition at this point. And Absolutely. Yeah, like, literally, um, there's a Pedro Almodovar movie called Live Flesh. Um, I, I love Pedro Almodovar. Um, but there's a scene involving like a gunshot that's intercut with like an old movie from the fifties. And it's one of his most artistic scenes, like from a very art house director. And it's like, if he can do it and slumber party massacre can do it, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> look at, look at this trend that slumber party massacre set the foundation for yeah, exactly. and they get no respect for it. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody call Cahir du Cinema. <laughs> but yeah, um, I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts you want to share about this movie? Um, 
I think that this is like from horror movie fans as a whole. I think everybody everybody knows of Slumber Party Massacre, but I don't think anyone ever sits down and really watches it. And I think that if they did, they would find a lot of these elements that we've been talking about and it would be a more exciting experience and I think that it would probably bump it up to a higher, you know, internal rating of the slasher canon in their minds because it it really is doing a lot of interesting and new things that I think often get overlooked in favor of, you know, big giant drill deaths. Um, yeah, I so mean, I, it, it's a it's a very male gaze genre, and that's what they've found to talk about in this movie. Yes, so I think that I think that everyone should go back if you if you haven't seen it, you know, look at it with with open eyes. I would hope that you've seen it if you're listening to this podcast because we spoiled the shit out of it. Yeah, we sure did. Um, <laughs> but if you if you have seen it or if you haven't seen it in a while, like give it a rewatch. But you know, look at it from a different perspective. Don't look at it so much as another slasher movie that came out in the 80s because there were so many of them like look at it for you know the look at it for the merits of of what it did what it changed and ask yourself why this didn't turn the tide why is this still kind of one of the only ones yeah it really should have ushered in more at least like let women direct slasher movies it makes clearly good at it Yeah, it makes no sense to me like this whole franchise did that and there's a there's like there's so few options I can think of them off the top of my head. It's like Rachel Talalay doing Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare. Um there's a movie called Home Sweet Home that was directed by a woman who I think was also Latina, which is awesome. But like who's heard of that? Yeah. And there's like little scattered ones and it's like let this happen. It's it's so shocking to me and like the the, the... The argument that I hear a lot is that, like, women, you know, women aren't tough enough for horror or whatever. Uh, Excuse you, everybody. I was like, what? Do you not, do you know what happens to us once a month for our whole lives? We bleed for seven days and don't die. Like, I'm sorry. We are more than familiar with blood. Yeah. And we're more than familiar with lots of it. So why is that an argument? Why? I don't understand how, like where that argument even came to be. It doesn't make any sense. I think so many people are perpetually living in a world where they believe women are standing on top of kitchen counters, screaming at mice. Um, that's, that's not a world we live in. It's not really a world we ever lived in. Yeah. Seconded wholeheartedly. Yeah. So support, support female slashers. Watch, Slumber Party Massacre. Please do. Also, Slumber Party Massacre 2. Hell yeah, Slumber Party Massacre 2. Number three, uh, maybe. It's okay. <laughs> it's, I, I think that one's movie. I think that one's the most like bad good of them where it's like actively terrible but still kind of enjoyable. Yeah. That's definitely the one that there's a little that one winks a little bit harder to the camera. Um I mean it's no it's no prom night three, so I love Prom Night 3. I love Prom Night 3. I'm ride or die for Prom Night 2. But oh, hell yeah. I mean... I actually really like Prom Night 3. I even like Prom Night 4. I don't think I've ever... I, like, I know what all of those words mean individually, but I don't think I've ever heard somebody put them all in a sentence <laughs> in that order. Uh, I assume you've seen it. Oh, yeah. It's... Yeah. It's... The crazy priest killing people not at a prom. It's it's a movie. Um, I want to say Prom Night Four is on a weird ass combo pack. Um, oh God, what was the other movie on it? 
it was in like a dollar bin at like a Walmart and it was like prom night four plus something that had absolutely nothing to do with prom night. Oh, I, f- I feel that. Um, I don't know that what I have it on is just three and four together. So I don't oh, know gotcha. which pack that is. Um, but honestly the prom night franchise, I stand pretty hard for minus the remake. Yeah. The, re- God, the remake. Don't get me started. No, I won't. Okay. This is, this is a slumber party massacre podcast. Yep. Yep. Um, we're tangenting. Yeah. One is great. Two is the most bananas movie. It's so fun. It's so special. It's like what? 61 minutes long or something. <laughs> yes. Um, it's, a, it's so short. It's a musical. It's a Nightmare on Elm Street ripoff. It's everything I think either of us have ever asked for in a movie. It's everything that I've ever wanted. It's so good. There's a man in a leather jacket with fringe. <laughs> oh, it's such a special movie. Um, maybe maybe next year, next f- fundraiser. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the return. <laughs> okay. Um, I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this awesome movie. Yes, thank you for um, having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, where can people find you online if they want to follow your exploits, if they aren't already doing that, which they should be? The easiest way to find me is on Twitter. It's where I'm the most active, and my handle is just my name. So, B-J-C-O-L-A-N-G-E-L-O, and it's I'm, I'm verified. So, if you found somebody who has my name that is not verified, it is not me. Do not be friends with them. They are going to try to hack your shit. Look for that blue check, folks. Look for that blue check. Um, are you still on the podcast you were doing? Um, I do still uh, occasionally contribute to the Screamcast. Um, at this point, I'm almost exclusively talking um, about the adult film restorations done by vinegar syndrome uh, for a segment called the back room so if there's ever an issue of the screamcast where there is a segment of the back room it's basically just me talking about porn for a half hour yeah check that out too yeah lots of fun lots lots of vintage smut love that all about it <laughs> all about it yeah um so i'm gonna wrap up but i'm gonna let you go um, Perfect. So I'll finish my recording thing after you're done. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me. Okay, now that BJ's gone, we can start gossiping again. Um, well, or I can just tell you where to find Scream 101 on social media. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Scream 101. You can find us on Twitter at Scream 101 Pod. You can email us at Scream 101 Podcast at gmail.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review. And anyone who gives us five stars, this week I am offering. Well, you know what? Let's 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 just hit the ground running. If you want either Happy Death Day, The Greatest Showman, or Paddington on digital download, um, yeah, hit us up, give us a review, tell us what you want. I'm so willing to reward you and treat you people. Thank you so much to everyone who's already reviewed the show. It super duper helps. Um, most podcasts say like, oh, it helps people find us on iTunes and stuff. And it's like, that's not really a concern of ours because, uh, you know, other podcasts exist and it's very hard to be heard in that noise, but it helps us in terms of just making us feel oh so good. And like, we're doing something that people are hearing. Um, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you again to Tristan Comer for donating, which was super awesome. And for picking a great choice, a movie for us to watch. Um, we'll catch you next week. 
Um, given how weird our schedule was for uh, last month, I feel hesitant in confirming 100% uh, what movie we're watching next week. But I'm gonna, I'm just gonna take a shot. I'm gonna go for it. Gonna see how that goes. Um, either next week or in two weeks. But probably next week, if my scheduling turns out right, we will be watching the uh, trauma German horror comedy film, Killer Condom, which, spoiler alert, I've already seen and I love. So I'm so excited to talk about it. We're going to have another special guest. So check that out, you know, whenever it happens. There will be an episode next week. Will it be Killer Condom? Who knows? Uh, Good luck on your journey and stay gold, you beautiful people. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me. It's podcasts for the weird at heart. Hey, Brandon. Yeah, Justin? We really need to record a trailer for our podcast. Why? Because that's how we'll get people to tune in. All the great podcasts have them. Oh, okay. Hey, what's this? You own a cassette player? What is this, 1992? This isn't mine. Well, what's on it? Hmm, let's see. Hey everyone, welcome to Eerie Earfuls. Every two weeks we pick a horror movie double feature to compare and contrast for your entertainment. Who chooses rotates each episode. We explain why we chose the films, then proceed to analyze the two. Proceed to analyze the two. Proceed to analyze the two. For your entertainment. You never know what pairings we might choose. You never know. What the hell? Was that... Us on that tape? Hello? Find more episodes on podpeople.me. Podcasts for the weird